Hi, this is Dave Vanderveen, and you're listening to the Kick Aspirational Podcast, Season 1, Episode 8. And, uh, and this one is all about uh, my own story and overcoming. Uh, to some degree, anyway, the whole concept of overcoming privilege and, uh, and how I did that through vulnerability. Uh, I'm currently in Asia. I'm in uh, Kyoto. It's morning here. And uh, <laughs> it's funny. I, uh, I really wanted to get this podcast out yesterday, but we've been incredibly busy on the road. Um, with the excess brand and um, in fact I started this trip in Borneo in Malaysia um, on an island the third largest island on earth uh, <laughs> right in between you know the Malay Peninsula uh, to the to the west uh, Indonesia to the south the Philippines to the north uh, it, it, you know kind of in this wild land and uh, and I'll get to why that's important in this story but um, I find myself today in Kyoto, and uh, it's it's always kind of fun to try and do these things while I'm on the road. Um, just trying to uh, to have the right tools to even do this as well as uh, get the content pulled together. This is going to be a little bit more complicated as a podcast, and I want to separate it into two different sections. Um, so I'll do I'll do this first part, which is all about um, some questions that I got. Uh, about how I broke through some barriers in my own life, uh, particularly a barrier of privilege. Uh, here's a big disclaimer. Yes, I'm white. I'm male. Uh, my parents are well-educated professionals. They're still married. So I came from a, a, you know, a good home. And they gave, they gave me this massive benefit of being, you know, coming from a highly functional environment uh, with great educational opportunities um, and, you know, healthy amounts of travel. And that was all coupled with with tremendous uh, extracurricular activities. Uh, we were, you know, my, my mother was a big believer in uh, taking at least a couple instruments, being parts of choirs. Uh, my dad wanted us to, to do sports, which I think is a great thing for kids to do. Um, so we just had a lot going on when I was growing up and a great foundation of, of, of confidence to go out into the world because you have tools to go out and succeed with. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to going out and being successful, if you have that basic foundation, um, you know, and, and frankly, I probably didn't even see it growing up, how, how valuable that was, because most of the people that I was growing up with were coming from the same place. Um, you just assume that's where most people come from. And it's not until later when you get out into life that you realize there's a whole lot of people that didn't have great parents um, or had a broken home or didn't have the educational opportunities or the opportunities to expand themselves through art and education and, and um, you know, sports and different things that give you deep senses of, of accomplishment and self-confidence self um, that are really important to human development. So um, that gave me a massive head start and I'm, I'm definitely well aware of that. So the first few podcasts, if you listen to, you know, one through four, I was telling a lot of my own story about breaking through um, some barriers in my own life, some failures that I had had. Um, but also underlying that are a lot of successes, are a lot of, um, you know, a real foundation for success anyways. And so um, I want to get into, and you know, and this the Kick Aspirational podcast is all about breaking through barriers, about, um, you know, learning from failure and about becoming bigger, more progressive humans as we do that. Um, so, so this week I want to get through kind of, kind of one, um, how I sort of overcame some of that uh, inheritance, if, if, you'll, if you'll think about it that way, and cultural bias to create a world that worked for me. Um, it's, it's funny, I was talking to my older son, Skyler. He's 24. He lives in Madrid. Um, he moved to Madrid to teach English after he graduated from university to do something on his own. And um, we happened to, uh, 
to get involved in a business in Madrid. Um, my wife and I did. We made an investment with a young entrepreneur that we've that we've known for a while, who we're a big believer in, and she has an agency uh, and uh, a business there. Uh, where there was some opportunity, where they needed some some people to help, and our our son, who was who was teaching and very busy at the time, uh, decided that he would consider interning with her, and um, and did a very good job, and and he ended up he's he's working for her now, um, back in Spain, through through our business, and uh, so I was talking with him about some things that are going on there, and and we end up having the opportunity to talk about. Um, about business a lot together, which I really enjoy, and and I he said that he had been listening to my pad podcast, and um, and I said, well, you know, kind of, what are you thinking about it? You know, do you have any criticism or feedback? And and he had some really good questions that mirrored some other questions I had had from uh, from actually some of our excess business partners, and so when he was uh, asking me these questions, I said, would you mind? Um, taking a moment and just writing some of that down. Um, you know, some of the earlier episodes were about interior work and about spiritual practices and, and breaking through some barriers, you know, internally in my life. Um, but part of, part of um, learning how to build a world we want to inhabit is, is one, having the right interior work done, but two, actually doing the work out in the world, right? Um, so... I wanted to get into some of the questions that I've been having, and uh, here's what my son wrote me, and it, mir- it mirrored some other questions I'd had from from other other people that I work with, but I thought he articulated it really well when he wrote it down, um, because he went to a great school and learned how to write, <laughs> and so I, I wanted to just read this to you first to start things off. This is from my son Skylar. He said, "Dear Dad, I'm writing to let you know that I enjoyed your podcast on breaking through barriers." Um, taking time to consider whether you're building a life you want to live and not just a career you want to work and then actually building it. He said that takes a tremendous amount of courage and hard work. It takes courage to prevent the expectations of others, your degree and your plan for your life from caging you in to a life you never intended to live. I was impressed by your willingness to turn away from things that must have seemed like your only viable career option to to pursue things that were riskier but ultimately make you happier. And then he says, that being said, I also hope you're thankful for all the help you had along the way. You not only had a family who loved you and supported you growing up, but a father who took time to bring you around lawyers and doctors' offices to ask thoughtful questions to help you decide if those were things you actually wanted to do. Um, my father's a doctor. He talked, ended up talking my older brother and I sort of out of becoming doctors, um, or at least questioning us why we wanted to do it and kind of letting us know that by the time we got to the medical uh, profession, there probably wouldn't be a lot of great uh, private practice options left. So the money wouldn't be there anymore. Um, not that that was the driving force, but it just would be, you know, if you're going to put all that time and, and investment into a career, um, you know, don't look for the, the financial investment coming back out necessarily the way it did, did for him and earlier medical professionals. And then when I looked at, you know, I was a philosophy and a political science double major, when I was looking at going to law school, and I had done well enough on my LSATs to get into some good law schools, um, he, he encouraged me to go with him to interview, um, you know, some attorneys and some family members who were judges to actually not only understand what attorneys did and talk to them about what they do, but he would ask them questions about their lives. That was in some earlier episodes we talked about. It was really, really helpful to me, and I was very fortunate to have a father who would not only make the time, but also ask the thoughtful questions. So my son's referencing that. Um, 
so he said, you know, that was very helpful. Um, let's say, <laughs> and asked thoughtful questions to help you decide if those were things you actually wanted to do. So yeah, it was very helpful that I had a father that would do that. One, that I had a father, and two, that I had a father that would do that with me. And then he said, you received an almost Ivy League education. <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. Mm. I got kicked out of a school, Wheaton College, that um, it's a Christian school, and um, some of the people who've gone there refer to it as the Harvard of Christian colleges, which, you know, it's just kind of a strange thing to say, but um, <laughs> it's, it's a better Christian school, and, and I did uh, almost get a degree from there until I got kicked out, and then I finished at Calvin College, which is also a very good uh, Christian, Christian liberal arts school, so I did benefit from, from a good college education. Um, he said, so you received an almost Ivy League education that left you with the writing and critical thinking skills, let alone a double degree that helped you get my first job at the Acton Institute, a small think tank in Grand Rapids. But it also left you with a network of intelligent, creative-minded people you could call when you decided you weren't going to work for think tanks anymore. You came from an environment where people wanted you to succeed and contributed to your success. So while it took some serious panache to do what you did, and you also didn't do it alone, it left me wondering what you might tell someone who doesn't have a college education or an alumni network with whom they could correspond or parents who love them or a community and institutions that just want them to succeed. What do you tell someone who's trying to succeed in spite of these things rather than because of them? Happy casting, Skylar. And I said, you know, wow, that's... um. That's the problem with raising kids to be independent thinkers and go out into the world. They actually just might do that. <laughs> be careful what you wish for. And then they might come back to you with, with these big questions um, that you have to ponder and think about and then be able to maybe articulate um, an answer that hopefully is helpful to somebody else on a podcast where you're trying to effectively reveal your soul a little bit. <laughs> And so um, that's what this podcast is all about. It's all about um, helping all of us break through barriers. And, and I think, you know, when, you, when we start talking about privilege, um, I, I don't want to get into something that's uh, too esoteric or something that, um, you know, is just kind of self-defeating. For me, the whole thing about uh, being at this point in my life, um, where, where we are in this story, you know, if you've, if you've listened to episode four, uh, before I did the interview with Christoph and Jen, and um, um, before I did the last interview with Steve Marty, if you listened to episode four, I had just moved to uh, the Napa Valley. I had fallen in love with my wife. Uh, I don't think I had disclosed that we were married yet, but we ended up uh, built, starting to build a life together in the Napa Valley. Neither of us were from there. We didn't have family from there. And, and I had just come to a big crossroads in my own life where... Um, I, I had left the, the career path that my, my undergraduate college degrees sort of dictated. You know, political science and philosophy kind of had me moving in a direction of working in public policy, working in politics, applying, you know, ideas to the political sphere. Um, and I had just realized I had this little kind of, I don't know if I would say total breakdown, but I had this, this kind of point in my life where I was like, this isn't making me feel fulfilled. This isn't bringing me where I want to go. And I decided to make a hard shift and move across the country to California and effectively um, start a life in business. And I, I was fortunate enough to have some college friends that helped me find an opportunity where I could shift into marketing out of public policy and, and uh, public relations work. And, and so I was working for a small beverage alcohol laboratory that was, it turned out was uh, you know, on the verge of starting to grow very quickly. Uh, working directly with the owner and get into um, 
a, a life where I was I was uh, doing something very different, uh, doing something I hadn't wasn't trained to do through my education, and uh, in a place where I didn't have any family relationships or any privileges that I had inherited. I did this, I, you know, I had a foundation and tools that I could work from, but I didn't didn't have this this um, this foundation, and then um, I was also operating from a place where all of a sudden I had this deep vulnerability. Um, so not only was I not trained to do the work I was doing and I was kind of, you know, uh, uneasy with this new life that I was learning to, to, uh, to create, but I had, uh, met my, my girlfriend at the time who became my wife, Sarah, uh, in Grand Rapids. She was just graduating college and I was back from Japan and working there for a small think tank. Um, we had decided that a life together was far better than a life apart. And so even though, you know, my plan and her plan was, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll be single till we're 30 and we'll, you know, then we'll start a life and we'll have kids after we've had our kind of professional success. We kind of threw all that to the wind and decided, you know, let's go live together in, in the Napa Valley. Um, and then we decided, well, if we're going to live together, we might as well get married. And so we sort of eloped with uh, not even our own family, just some, uh, some, some friends that we, we had. We eloped in front of about twelve of our, our of our you know family friends, um, who were who were living in the Bay Area, and then we had a reception for our family later. It was it was kind of a strange way to get married, but we decided that's how we were going to start our life together because we didn't want to wait around. We wanted to get going, and then on top of that, um, about a month or two months after we got married, uh, my wife discovered she was pregnant <laughs> with my child, <laughs> completely unintentionally. Um, and if you're, if you're a young, I mean, we were, I was probably 24 when, when we got married. My wife was, I believe, 22. And we had our son, Skylar, the one who's writing me these questions. <laughs> when, when she was, I believe, 20, uh, 23 or 24, and I was 25. Um, she's, our birthdays are a little bit off kilter. She's a, a fall birthday. I'm a, I'm a early, I'm in Feb a February birthday. So I think I was 25 when Skylar was born in March, and she was, 23, you know, turning 24 that year. But we were very, you know, young um, from our backgrounds to start having kids. We weren't planning for at least another five or six years to have kids. So it kind of throws your whole world off when you're in a place where you don't know a lot of people and you're in a career path that you really hadn't prepared for, where you get married at a younger, a much younger age than you had, than you had thought you would. And then on top of that, you've got a kid coming. So um, I'm going to add one more, one more uh, chink to that matrix. Um, before our son was born, the, the Christmas before our son, our born, son was born in March, the Christmas before that, we had traveled back to Michigan to see my family um, because my older brother, who was 18 months older than me, was very, very sick. He had gone through about three or four years of, of leukemia and was at a point where um, he was dying. And uh, so we had gone back to see him. He, he died uh, in, a, in a, you know, not a very nice way over the Christmas holiday. Um, my wife was very pregnant. And then we, we flew from that funeral to spend some time with her parents in the Boston area. Um, and then we had to get back to work uh, in the Napa Valley. And so as we came home, from all of that, I was in a very unsettled place, to put it mildly. Not only had I moved cross, had I moved cross country. Not only had I gotten married. Not only had we gotten pregnant, uh, but I had just lost 
um, you know, literally the closest sibling that I had, the person that I grew up sharing a bedroom with most of my life, who did most of the things right in life, where I was kind of a black sheep, and um, you know, I was doing things wrong a lot, and and then he gets hit with this, you know, this DNA, you know, really I, th- I think something that comes largely from DNA, um, leukemia. Uh, that was just kind of the Russian roulette of, of DNA. And and here I was the one who deserved, in my opinion, to you know have bad things happen because I wasn't doing things right all the time. And, you know, I had gotten married. I was living in a nice place. I had gotten to a career path that I was kind of excited about, even though a little bit scared of. And here we were expecting a child. And, and that brings me to, um, I just happened to listen. David Andres, another friend from Wheaton, sent me... Um, a TED a TEDx talk of Brene Brown, um, I think it was from TEDx Houston, where she talks about vulnerability, and um, I'm just going to run through a quick summary of her work on vulnerability. It's going to be a poor paraphrase of how she explains it in her TEDx talk. So please um, look up Brene Brown vulnerability. It was a TEDx Houston talk. You can find it. Um, Inc. Magazine has some. Um, uh, in fact, I've linked it on my social media pages, so you can find it on my social, on my personal Facebook page, David Vanderveen. But um, look up Brene Brown and vulnerability. Here's what she says. She says, um, and, and vulnerability ties into privilege because I think until we come, become vulnerable, until we unpack all of the things we've inherited, all of the privileges we have and move that out of the room, it's very hard to know who we are and, and to feel worthy where we can become vulnerable and become wholehearted. Here's what she says. She says um, she says she was going through thousands of stories, um, a lot of data, a lot of um, what you would call kind of quantitative analysis about qualitative stories, so about people's lives, the qualities of their lives. And she started to... Um, see and she was unpacking the whole idea of shame doing qualitative research about shame but doing it in a, in a quantitative way um she was looking at love belonging and worthiness and she was looking at the differences in people who who believe um they're worthy or people who believe they're not worthy the people who are able to overcome uh shame were people who basically felt they were worthy she says what do they have in common they they were wholehearted they had a sense of courage coming from this word of the, the ancient word of heart in the English language and and they were able to tell their story with their whole heart they were able to be imperfect to show who they were to to the world without worrying about whether or not you know they had to present this picture of everything's rosy um, they were able to have compassion to treat others with love and respect because first they love and respected themselves and um, and they were able to to basically uh, have connection with other people because they're able to be transparent and vulnerable. And that um, makes them beautiful and comfortable. Uh, not they, they were then able, I, I should say, to say I love you first without guarantees, without worrying about what was coming back. They were able to add you know, this deep, meaningful value to somebody else's life without looking for a return. And and what her research shown was that that this vulnerability is ultimately um, what allows people to stop trying to control and predict their lives. What what quantitative research is all about: control and prediction, control and prediction, and become awake with a qualitative life, a story that you can own. 
that that really is becomes the birthplace of joy, belonging, and love. Um, see, when you when you become open to joy, belonging, and love, you can be open to pain. When you're trying to control and 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 predict your entire life, there isn't room for failure. A lot of times, there isn't room for uh, for pain in your life. And and if you think about it, right, as we've lost this ability to tell stories about our lives, as we've focused on quant all the time, on science and technology all the time. Um, not that it's, it's an either or. I think they both have to work together to really have a fulfilled life. But as we try and isolate those two things, well, it's either one or it's, other, it's either it's either science or it's humanities. No, it's both. Science came out of humanities. But if we try, if we start to try and numb that pain, if we try and numb that vulnerability, um, we become a society that becomes the most obese, the most addicted, the most medicated cohort in American history. Um, you know. And, and it, it's funny because you can't selectively numb your life. Uh, you'll find these holes in your life, like Steve Marty talked about, that you'll start trying to fill with alcohol, or you'll start, try, start trying to fill with, with drugs, or you'll start trying to fill with pizzas and beers. And, and you can't. You can pour as much of that as you want into that hole in your life, and it will just become this bottomless pit where your life becomes worse and worse because you're not getting to that vulnerable place, vulnerable place where joy, belonging, and love can actually not only be born, but exist and give you deep and and uh, deep fulfillment and a sense of worthiness. Um, if you look at what happens in religion, it goes from a place of embracing the mystery of our existence to a place where we have to have certainty, where we have to have binary true and false answers, where we have to know what the answer key is, or maybe it's not real faith. No, you know, faith doesn't exist without doubt. Faith doesn't exist without the sense of uncertainty, without the mystery. It's the same in politics. If if we get to this point where it has to be certain, we get to a point of blame. We, we, we can't take the blame ourselves if we can't be vulnerable. We have to point the finger at somebody else. Try and post, you know, something political on your social media. How does that work on Facebook, right? It's like people are just avoiding Facebook because they're tired of these ridiculous political, not discussions, they're not discussions anymore, they're not discourses anymore. It's just people screaming at each other. People can't hear each other anymore. People can't, don't have what, you know, what Steve Marty had talked about, this intentional listening anymore on social media a lot of times. And when we lose that, when we can't be vulnerable, when we can't be wrong, when we can't embrace the idea that maybe we don't have it all right, we lose the ability to actually find truth. It's, it's one of the most uh, uniquely um, discomforting things to realize that until you can be vulnerable first, you can't get to the things that really matter in your own life. You can't move past the privileges that you've inherited, that I've inherited. Um, you know, we try and perfect, and this is one of the things Bre Brene Brown said. She, 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 she says, we try and perfect ourselves by pulling fat out of our butt and injecting it in our face. And she said, people in the future are going to look back at us and point to things like this and say, what were they doing? What was wrong with these people? Why couldn't they just be learn to be happy with themselves? Why couldn't they move the furniture out of the rooms, like as Pete Holmes talked about? in order to become vulnerable and figure out in an empty space, what should I move back in? Um, so, you know, we need to let ourselves be seen and, and we need to be wholeheartedly seen. We need to, um, to love with the whole hearts without guarantee. We need to embrace gratitude, joy, and we need to practice it. To say that we feel vulnerable means that we need to feel alive. 
Um, and we need to feel like we're enough, she says, to stop screaming and start listening, start listening to others and start listening to ourselves. So, you know, I had to learn to move past this privilege that my son brings out that he says, you know, what do you offer to people who don't have those privileges? The first thing I'd say is, um, we need to find a place where we can be wholehearted, where we can be vulnerable, where we can, <clears throat> excuse me, offer love without first looking for love in return. And, and what I had to do is I had to unpack all of that furniture that I had and start to do some other things that I wasn't trained to do in a place where I didn't have a support network with fortunately a spouse who, um, who I was building a life with, but where all of a sudden we had to have all this vulnerability with a new baby who was coming along, the one that's writing me these letters, asking me these tough questions. Um, and when I was in Borneo, on this island, um, you know, a part of Malaysia, uh, earlier last week, and I was walking through Borneo, and I was on this little boat cruise on the river uh, in Sarawak, uh, this this nation, and I saw the Brook Boathouse, and then I went to this um, this old fort where they talked about James Brook, the first white raja of of Sarawak, and I was like, man, that sounds familiar. And it reminded me, and I, and I looked him up on Wikipedia, and it turns out that a, a, an author, George MacDonald Fraser, who I love, who wrote these uh, Flashman Chronicles that my, uh, one of my best friends on earth, uh, Mark Metherell, had turned me on to, uh, had written, he writes uh, fictionalized accounts of this character, uh, Flashman, who goes, you know, kind of in the 1800s, goes around the world in, in, uh, as a British uh, officer, you know, in, in the military, uh, uh, in the middle of great points in history. Uh, anyways, he ends up in Borneo meeting this guy, James Brooke, from Sarawak, and I knew it sounded familiar. I'm like, that's the guy that Flashman meets in one of these fictionalized histories. So anyways, I'm there, and I'm, and I'm reading up about uh, James Brooke as I'm thinking about these ideas for the podcast that we're going to do this week. And it turns out what James Brooke had done is he'd been born in India, he had gone to school, as people did in the British Empire, in, um, in England, and then he joined, you know, uh, the, the, the East India Company, which was kind of a quasi-government, uh, quasi-private uh, enterprise that had armies. And he was fighting, you know, wars over in, in uh, Central Asia and India and uh, got injured. His father died. He inherited quite a bit of money. He was a single man. And uh, he decided to, to buy a boat and sail off into what then was... Um, you know, Indonesia and and uh, Borneo and seek his fortune. He helped uh, the Sultan of Brunei reestablish himself on Borneo, and the Sultan of Brunei made him the first white Raja of Sarawak, uh, which is where I was standing. And I was like, oh my gosh, here is a guy who inherited a lot, who had all this training, who went to a college in England, who fought wars, you know, you can argue about whether or not those wars were great for the people they were fighting, but you know, who fought wars in, on behalf of the British Empire. And when he inherited everything and could have just retired on that inheritance, he instead decided to buy a small ship and go and invest that in a place where everything was on the line. And because he chose to do that, he became vulnerable and put it out there for the Sultan of Brunei he got it all back as the first white Raja and you know, established a, a, a dynasty um, in Borneo. I'm not arguing that everyone needs to go do that, but what I had to do, so my son's asking me this, some of our business partners are asking me, David, how would you, what would you say to somebody that doesn't have what you had, that didn't come from where you did? I'd say maybe you're a couple steps ahead. 
Because what I had to do was unpack all that before I could get started. I had to get that out of the room. It did give me a foundation, but it also made me, uh, forced me to put a lot more at risk. And um, so the next story I want to get into is how when I was, you know, had kind of a lot of things stripped away from me. My brother had just died. My wife and I were living in a place where we didn't have much. Um, our world had kind of been turned upside down. Um, how I was flying up to Washington State from the Napa Valley, you know, so I'm from Northern California, with my boss, and we ended up sitting down on a plane next to a person who would come to transform my life um, through our relationship, through our ultimate partnership, not because he had some big education, not because he, he had uh, great wealth <laughs> financially, but because he helped me discover how to dig up and find opportunities sitting around me, sitting around all of us, that you can't see unless you have the tools to go look for them and the courage to put something out and offer something to somebody else before you ask for anything back. It's literally how I got involved in the Amway business as a distributor by meeting a random person I had never met before, had no connection to, sitting on a flight. You know, I think it was a two-hour flight going from Oakland to Seattle next to someone in a similar position to me. He was young and married, just married, and his wife was pregnant, just like mine was just pregnant. At, at, you know, she was at home when I was on that flight. And he asked me what I was doing, what I was doing with my life. And I was going through all this mess, and I said... Um, you know, I went, didn't go to a place of vulnerability. I went to a place of power. I said, well, I'm a marketing director at this laboratory. And in fact, you know, the owner's sitting right across the aisle from me. And he said, oh, that's great. You know, what do you do? And I kind of explained what a beverage alcohol laboratory does and that we were flying up to Seattle to meet some of our winery clients up there. And he said, um, he asked me this question with my boss sitting across the aisle. Are you making all the money you want to make? And I said... You know, and I'm going to tell you this story briefly from my perspective. He'll tell it to you from a different angle. But I said, that's kind of a stupid question. Nobody makes all the money they want to make. You know, <laughs> Bill Gates doesn't make all the money he wants to make. Money's a marker. It's how you keep score. You know, it's like asking, you know, does Michael Jordan, has Michael Jordan scored all the points he wants to score? You never stop scoring all the points you want to score. I was just playing in a three-on-three -three basketball tournament, an Amway Japan J-style tournament uh, this past weekend in Tokyo. It's amazing. We have like 5,000 people come with you know more than 60 teams uh, from more than four countries to play basketball together in short five-minute three-on-three games. And, and I'm the captain of one of the teams, the Excess Pirates. Um, it's based on the, the energy drink brand that we built and, and later sold to, to Amway. But at this point in the story... You know, I don't know that much about Amway. I grew up in West Michigan. Um, you know, I was aware of the company. But he asked me, he said, do you make all the money you want to make? And I'm like, I'm like, no, that's kind of a dumb question. And, um, you, know, you know, effectively. And so I think he maybe got a little defensive with that, you know, that answer I gave him. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Scott says, well, you know, um, he's, and as he's, he's kind of talking to me about this, I look over at his wife who's sitting on the other side of him. He's sitting in the middle. You know, it's three seats across on this flight. And she's going through some notes, I'm noticing. And as he's asking this question, she closes the folder. And the, the, the front of the folder 
that that she closes says Amway right on the cover. They were coming from an Amway can you know event or series of events called um, Go Diamond Weekend down at, at Disneyland, and they, were, they had, their flight had stopped in Oakland where we had gotten on, and I sat down next to them. Uh, that's where my seat was, and so by complete accident or by providence, you might say, I I sit next to Scott and his wife. And he starts asking me these questions. She folds the, the folder closed. It says Amway. And I just say to him, I say, does this line of questioning have something to do with Amway? And, you know, he gets, a, now he gets a little defensive, in, in my opinion. You, you could kind of hear the breath go out of her. It was like, you know, there was a, dis, a disturbance in the forest. And he says, he's like, you could almost hear her go, crap. Like, you know, because he was doing this. He was prospecting me. And I was kind of realizing I was being prospected for something, but wasn't sure what it was. And then I see Amway on the cover. And I'm like, does this have something to do with Amway? And, and he says, well, yeah, it does. What do you know about it? Um, you know, which was a little bit of a defensive posture. But he's putting the ball in my court. What do you know about it? And uh, I said, well, I've, I, you know, I've got some uh, relatives that work at the company in Ada, Michigan. Um, and he says, what, like they, like they drive forklifts or something? <laughs> and I said, I said, well, you know, not exactly. They're executives there, and they've been very successful. I don't have anything against Amway. In fact, I have no idea really what people do in the Amway business. And I was very curious. So I started saying, I assume you're with Amway. What do you do? How does it work? And, um, and we had some, you know, we had some dialogue about that. And I said, well, look, I'd be, I'm interested. I'm looking for opportunities right now. I'm looking for other ways to make money. My wife is pregnant. We are going to have a baby. Um, <laughs> and babies mean you need more money. And she's probably not going to work. So, you know, we were kind of unpacking some of that stuff. And so he was going to get me some audio cassette tapes. And um, I had told him a hotel we were going to stay at with, I was going to stay at with my boss. We ended up changing hotels. And this was in the age kind of before uh, the World Wide Web. This is 1990, early 1994, I believe. And, um, and uh, he basically said, you, you know, uh, I'll get you some uh, audio tapes I want you to listen to. Uh, you need to come to this event that we're going to be having in Portland to get more information. And I was fine with that. I traveled a lot. You know, I was already traveling for work and, and used to, um, getting, you know, pro professional training um, in the wine industry and before that and, you know, in, in public policy. So that wasn't that strange. Um, and I said, fine, you know, um, but we couldn't, didn't connect. He called my wife. She was like, who's this weird guy calling you? <laughs> and, and then there's a, a bigger story about how he came down and, and how he ended up getting started that I'll save for a later episode. In fact, I really want him to tell this story because you'll hear a difference in how I tell it and his perspective. Um, we may have slight differences in facts, which I think is important, you know, because different points of view, you retain different memories of what happened. Um, and his story is much more entertaining than, than the way I'll tell it. Scott tells great stories. He's a fantastic storyteller. Um, but we were at this place where we were deeply vulnerable. And, and I was, um, I didn't know it then, but I had to learn to become more vulnerable before I could break through this barrier that my son asked me about, where I could start to help other, not, not only help myself, but start to offer help and guidance to other people who maybe didn't come from the same place that I did. Um, and I want to end with, I just watched this movie called I Kill Giants, which I absolutely loved. And it's about this little girl who it turns out her mother is dealing with, with cancer and she's killing giants in her own reality she creates in order to fight her mother's cancer. Um, 
But here is a little quote she had as she's being questioned by her school counselor about her strange behavior and this weird little talisman she's carrying around in a purse she made called uh, Kovaleski. It's named after a baseball player who um, broke through some barriers in his life. She said, he, you know, this, this, this counselor says, why are, you, why are you making up stories about giants? Why are you out there trying to kill these giants? And she says, a giant comes to a place and destroys everything in its path. Worse than that, it's not like a dumb cartoon or something. A giant, meaning a real giant, is hate. Smashing stuff isn't enough. A giant takes. It takes everything from you. And when it's done, it's like anything that made your life good was never even there. Barbara, are you afraid of giants? Like the counselor asks, and she says, no, not afraid of them because I have Kovaleski. She had this talisman, this, this secret weapon. If I stay focused and am worthy, I can stop death itself. The way that I had to break through privilege, that I had to break through the death of my brother, that I had to break through having my whole life turned upside down, when I'd come from a place of privilege, when I'd come from a good family and good education and, and a, a very good career path that I decided to just turn my back on was I had to learn to become vulnerable. I had to dig deep and start to be honest about who I was, warts and all. And I had to start sharing that story with other people and inviting them to come join me on a journey, on a quest, an adventure to slay giants. Because if we did that together, maybe we would become worthy. And maybe we could help other people slay giants in their own lives and do things that we had no idea we were, we were capable of, of, of doing and become people we had no idea we were capable of becoming. I barely have a voice from this three-on-three tournament. I'm recording into my iPhone, which is probably not the best quality. I'm telling you stories about my own life, which make me incredibly vulnerable. And I want to thank my son and some of our distributors who sent me questions that forced me to, to confront some of these issues in my own life. Thank you very much. Uh, we have more stories coming. This is Kick Aspirational. It is an interactive podcast. I would welcome any of your questions or comments. And I'd love to hear stories from your own life, have you broke, broken through barriers and become kick aspirational in your own way with people you meet along the way in your own journey. Thank you very, very much. Please send me comments or questions, either david at kickaspirational.com or, um, or in any of my social media. Please reach out and DM me. I appreciate your feedback. Be kick aspirational.